0: Good morning. Good to see you guys. Um, this morning we're gonna we're gonna start like a five part series. Uh, being that we just wrapped up the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we're actually gonna deal with some Lenten ish content for the next five. Parts And I don't want to call it Lent too hardcore because I know some people are averse to uh, that terminology. And we aren't necessarily like high church. We don't do a lot of liturgical things. But we really, as we were approaching the season, we were thinking about how cool it would be to actually have a season of preparation leading up to Easter that prepared our hearts and prepared us for Jesus' death and resurrection. And so that's what we're going to spend the next several weeks doing. Um, I want to say just a few things about Lent. Before uh, we get into this, um, I, I was with somebody at a coffee shop on Ash Wednesday just a couple weeks ago, February 22nd, and uh, we were sitting there talking, and they looked at me, and they're like, these people keep walking in with like ash crosses on their forehead, and, uh, and so we were having this discussion about what that represented, and for those of you that do not know what Lent is, Lent, literally, the word literally means spring, um, in Catholic churches, uh, Lent is something that is strictly uh, observed, or more liturgi- liturgical churches observe through the 40 days from Ash Wednesday, February 22nd, leading up to Easter Sunday. Much like when we when we do like an Advent-ish study uh, before Christmas, what it is is a preparation. Right? It's it's something that's tilling the soil of our hearts and preparing us for what's to come. Uh, with Advent, we are looking towards the arrival of the baby Jesus, the the Son of God, the Messiah, coming in a manger for us. With Lent, it's a little bit different because it's actually a time more of like mourning but also repentance, recognition of what Jesus accomplished through his death. And and then on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the the resurrection, the life that Jesus brought for us, salvation and forgiveness and all of these things. but again, I, I just want to remind us in these next five parts, I don't want to get too hardcore on Lent. What I really want to get into is just some deeper things that I think are, are, are kind of rich opportunities for us to prepare our hearts in this season leading up to uh, the celebration of Jesus's death and resurrection. So let me pray for us. And then we'll dive in. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. I just thank you for these times of worship. God, where your church comes together and we sing, we honor, we glorify you, we worship you this morning. And uh, Jesus, I just pray for your hand to be upon this time. God, we invite your spirit to come move as you desire in this place. God, as we talk about temptation and we talk about confession this morning, I pray, Jesus, that you'd be on the move in this place as I know that there are some here this morning carrying heavy burdens as they walk through that door. But I pray, Jesus, we would find life and find life abundantly in you. And so we give you this time, Jesus. We pray that we would dig into some of the meaning of um, this Lent season, and we would sort of extract the richness of that, and that it would actually prompt us in our walks with you to actually be a people that would take steps in our life of devotion, Lord, dedication, and followership of you on a daily basis. And so we give you this time, and um, we we pray that it would honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the things that I love about this Lent season or the the nature of Lent is that the very early church, or even since the beginning for the Jewish people, um, since the the inception uh, um, of the people of Israel— it's it's been this counter-cultural faith for them. Christians lost their lives in the early church because they were unwilling to worship Caesar, which is what they had to do, um, what what they had to do in order to not be martyred, or to be martyred. And actually, Christians in the early church were the ones who were grabbing babies who were left out in the sun, uh, which was one way that they would abort babies in the early church. And the Christians were the ones that were gathering up the babies being left in the sun in order to care for them. And historically, it was actually in the spring, this time, Lent, spring, um, it it was uh, in the spring was where many religions would actually use this season to celebrate these gods of fertility and and these goddesses of fertility and all kinds of rites. And then you had the Christians that in the springtime, like during the season of Lent, instead of trying to appease these gods and do all they could for these gods of fertility, they were kind of turning inwards in the springtime, in the season. They were practicing the season of repentance and they were practicing the season of uh, of self-denial and fasting and they were actually doing completely opposite things than many other religions were in the early church. And the Christians did this not just like to appease God or to appease Yahweh, or or the gods, like other religions did. But in fact, they did this because they wanted to prepare their hearts for him and to be transformed by him. And so there's this richness in the depth of this season that we're in. And if you didn't grow up in like a high church context or, or, or you have never followed like a liturgical church calendar, then you sort of miss some of the formative pieces of these disciplines and these practices. And that's what I'm really hoping is over the next few weeks, we can begin to put some of these practices in place that prepare our hearts and sort of till the soil of our hearts for Jesus' death and resurrection that we're celebrating in a month. So I wanna encourage you this morning to not think about giving something up so uh, in like an obligatory way. And so oftentimes Lent is looked at as something where you know, you're know you gonna fast this week and you're gonna just give something up and it's done in a way that's just, again, it's obligatory. We do it sort of to appease God. Some of us, we, we do it or I've heard people do it because um, their family does it and they don't even really know the depth or the reason why they're doing it. It's just something that their families have always done. But I wanna encourage us this morning that the core premise behind Lent, is to not give something up in a legalistic or in obligatory way, uh, or like if I scratch God's back, then God's going to scratch my back. If, if I do this, then God's going to bless me sort of way. But I want you to think about the idea of choosing during this season. the season. This idea of choosing less of the world. This idea of like us choosing self-denial, choosing to give something up. Again, not in a legalistic way, but in a way that we want to actually apprehend or consume more of God. We're choosing to give something up because we want him to replace those things. We want more of him. Does anybody in this room resonate with that? Like you sit there sometimes and want I want more of Jesus. I want more of his spirit. And the reality is there's so many things that have consumed our lives and our hearts that we have to get rid of these things to make room for more of him. And the season is a choosing of this nature. And so we do this in the the very rhythms and the patterns of our day. We give stuff up that becomes part of us that we actually say, I want to give that thing up. And I think the richness of Lent is not just the denial of something, but but it's all about what you're choosing in the place of the thing that you're giving up. And this is really the most life-giving piece of fasting, is that you deny yourself of something in order to make room or time for more of the Lord, for something else. So what will you put in that thing's place as you choose to give it up? What will you put in its place? This morning we're gonna focus on Luke chapter four and I want you guys to turn there. We're just gonna be in Luke four verses one through 13. Story that many of you have heard before but we're gonna spend some time camp and camp out in it for a little bit. Um, and I really encourage you that, that, again, we're gonna dive deep into this passage this morning and ask a few questions, but I wanna look at like what happened, what, 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 do, what can we observe from this text? What does it mean? Like what's the interpretation of this passage? And then the last part I wanna end on today is just how does this apply to us? How do we walk away from here today? And so what happened in this passage? I'm not gonna read through it, but I am gonna read through it as I teach through it. And so just follow along with me. But Jesus leaves the Jordan area and uh, his baptism actually. And the scriptures say, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, at the beginning of that, path, that text, returned from the Jordan and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So notice those words, that he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days. I've often read this text and thought well, it was kind of a conversation that Jesus is having with the devil, right? It's just very kind of academic. I picture it like this really easygoing conversation. Well, sort of like, if you, if you need, or like, you need to do this, Jesus, won't you do that? And he's like, no, I won't do that. And then Jesus' is like, well, worship the Lord and serve him only. And yet, when we settle into a rhythm of just reading this passage and not understanding the actual, like, the angst, the depth of the conversation that's taking place, what Jesus is feeling and the power and the influence the enemy's trying to have. like It isn't temptation unless we take this thing very seriously. It's not just a dialogue or a conversation that they're having. It's an actual temptation being thrown at Jesus. And this was a season of severe, like physical, emotional, mental, spiritual temptation for Jesus. It was a struggle struggle of epic proportions, something that you and I probably cannot even imagine. And this was not temptation without it being a struggle about life and death, about good and evil, about God versus Satan. And it would not be about temptation if there wasn't the possibility that he could fail. But it was only a conversation like w- without these elements. like It was just a dialogue, it was just academic if we remove any of the weight of the conversation that's being had. There was a real struggle going on between Jesus and the devil. And the, pi- the pillars of this passage are these three temptations. The first one you see in verse three, the devil says to him, if you're the son of God, Command the stone to become bread. This is his first temptation. I want you to highlight three words, and, and a, uh, two words and a phrase, actually, um, because these are gonna be important. The first one is if. Not since, not because you're the son of God, but he says, if you're the son of God. The second phrase to sort of underline is this phrase, son of God. So if connects to this phrase, son of God. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then the third keyword I want you to underscore is the word bread. Because it occurs in Satan's statement and then it also occurs in Jesus' response. He says, man shall not live on bread alone. He repeats that back. And so as the reader, like as I'm reading through this, I ask myself the question, well, what's the significance of Satan? asking, uh, uh, or what's the significance of what Satan is asking Jesus to do? What's the significance even of Jesus's response to Satan? In the second temptation, Jesus is led to view all the kingdoms of the world. Whether or not he, he left the wilderness necessarily to do this, we don't know, but it makes more sense that Jesus is still out in the wilderness and he's sort of like this virtual reality thing that the the enemy takes him to this place and begins to show him these kingdoms. It wasn't like, oh, thank God that I get a break from the wilderness, I'm gonna head over here now. It was like within it, the enemy shows him these things. And the devil takes him up and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in this moment and he says this to him, to you I will give all, all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered or given to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Interesting in this statement that the devil claims to have possession of them if Jesus would worship him. That, that he, somehow the devil thinks that he's got possession of them, that he's going to give them to Jesus if Jesus worships him. And Jesus responds in this way. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so it seems a little bit cryptic, right? Like I understand showing him all the kingdoms of the world, but worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Where is it that Jesus is pulling this passage from? Why is this, re- why is this relevant? I'll come back to these. The third temptation, Jesus is then led to the pinnacle of the temple. It's the southeastern corner um, uh, of the temple, the highest corner of the temple, about 211 feet tall, 21 stories high, This was no small, uh, this is no small fall if Jesus was to fall. And he says, do this. If If you're the son of God, again, underline if, throw yourself down from here. And this next part is interesting is that the devil quotes from Psalm 91, verse 11. Like make a little footnote in your brain that the devil's actually quoting scripture to Jesus. He's quoting Psalm 91. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, They'll lift you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In other words, God's going to rescue you. And then Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then you have to ask, like, how was that a test? Is there a key word there? And sure enough, like, you, you sort of see that there, there is one. Like, why did the devil tempt him in this way? Why does Jesus respond the way that he does? And then the passage ends with this really sort of ominous verse, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So interesting. So the devil wasn't done. What does all this mean? How can we interpret this stuff? So as we go through this, I really want to encourage you to begin to take this passage and to begin to say, God, how does this apply to me? And I want, to see, I want you to see yourself in light of some of the parts of this passage this morning. But I want you to underline it in your Bible or highlight it in your phone or mark it in your heart how these interpretations are going to be applied by the Holy Spirit. So the context of these temptations uh, is the first thing I want to look at. So sit back for a second. Think for a second of Jesus, who who we believe to be God himself, that he submitted himself to these temptations. He was led by the Spirit, but he cooperated. He goes into the wilderness, 40 days, into barrenness, submitting himself to essentially physical, emotional, mental torture, so to speak, to isolation, to weariness, to despair. Like Jesus has actually felt everything that you have felt in your life. Now, how many of you in this room have ever fasted for a day, okay? Three days? This isn't like a contest, but five days? Anybody ever gone 30 days? 30 days, that's crazy. Whenever I've fasted for like two or three days at periods of my life, I feel like I wanna eat my own hand by the end of it, right? (laughs) To think about 40, Days that Jesus is in the wilderness. Jesus didn't just fast for a day or a week or even a month. We're talking about 40 days. This was a legit fast. And while he's fasting, he's in the wilderness, by the way. And just to remind you, this wilderness is not like trees and stuff, right? This isn't like Narnia, where he has places to hide and water to drink from, uh, when I went to Israel, I was very surprised to see this wilderness area and realize this is a desert. There's literally nothing there. He has nothing. It's hot. It's sun beating down on him, on him for 40 days. It's crazy. It's not trees. You come to North Idaho and, and you think about wilderness and our initial context is the trees in our backyard, these forests and these hills and these things. this wilderness that's here. But this is 40 days, he's in the middle of the desert and he's hungry, he's really hungry. Satan comes and he says, if you're, if you're God's son, tell the stone to become bread. So in other words, take care of yourself, feed yourself, do what it's gonna take, don't depend on God's provision, And inside of Satan, like Satan's words are really this like dual accusation, right? The the first is God's not gonna take care of you is what he's telling him. The moment a Jew hears 40 days in the wilderness, what's their initial context? They start thinking about Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, being led through the wilderness, all that they went through in that time, all that God even provided for them in this time. And so there's this kind of juxtaposition of Israel and wilderness and Jesus and wilderness. And so the last time that Israel went through this, they didn't trust God, did they? They actually accused God of not providing for what they needed. They complained, they argued with God. And then in their starvation, God in his mercy feeds them what? He feeds them manna. And the second temptation was this. If you are the son of God, and, and this is a question of Jesus' identity, like, is God truly your father? Are you truly Jesus, the prized son of God? Are you really the Messiah? And so Satan, take note of this in your mind, like, as you begin to interpret this, right? Satan uses Jesus' circumstances to question the Jesus' identity. And I think about that and I think, how often does that happen for you and I? When Satan uses our circumstances to cause us to question our identity, whose we are, who we are. It's important for us. Notice that Jesus doesn't turn the stones to bread. He asserts that what really matters is not food, is what he says, not sustenance of the physical nature. But, but, a, but a God of sustenance and spiritual nature, a God that will provide for him. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3, and this is Moses speaking to Israel. And Moses says, so he humbled you, allowing you to hunger, fed you with manna, that he might make you know that a man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Exactly what Jesus says. Jesus repeats this. And so having sort of victory over this first temptation, Jesus affirms that God is truly his heavenly father, that God actually is his provider, his sustenance, and that he actually is God's prized one and only son. The second temptation, Satan lies and he deceives and he offers Jesus what was not his to offer he shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world, and it says the authority and the splendor, the wealth and the power, the privilege of having all of this and being king of all of this, as though Jesus isn't already. This is what the enemy's pitching to him, and he offers Jesus what Satan does not actually possess. Satan was not given the kingdoms of the world, Satan was allowed to roam the earth, but he was not given the kingdoms. And he would never give it to him, even if he could, because Satan, in and of himself, is a deceiver. Like, he's a liar. He's always got a card up his sleeve. And so the one condition was that Jesus must worship him, is what Satan says. Just like Israel, by the way, was tempted to worship other gods because they would get wealth and authority and splendor and all the stuff that God promised them. But the Israelites wanted to get it their way, how they wanted it. And so safety, by the way, they wanted. Privilege, by the way, they wanted. The same things that when you think of sort of American culture and what we lust after today, it's these same things that they're lusting after. And Israel did that. Their temptations were the same as Jesus's but they gave in to them. So how does Jesus respond? Deuteronomy 13, Jesus quotes that and he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What's interesting about this word worship is that it also can mean to fear, the same word, worship and to fear. And the context of Deuteronomy 13 is this. Deuteronomy 13, Moses says this to Israel, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, a land with large flourishing cities, you did not build houses, um, houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells, vineyards, olive groves, you didn't plant. Then when you've eaten and satisfied, he said, be careful, be careful is what he said. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, fear the Lord your God and serve him only. And so Jesus's rebuttal said, I will not worship you, Satan. I'll worship God and I will serve God only. And he did this by not seeking what the world offers, but he sought to die for the world and to give his life for the world. That was how Jesus accomplished it. Blessed are you, Jesus said. Jesus said, blessed are you who give, it is better to give than to receive, which is the very thing that Jesus practices in his life. This act of giving versus receiving, dying for the world, living for the kingdom of God, sacrificing himself for you and I. And then the final temptation was this, He says, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Have angels swoop you up for all the world to see. Once again, Satan challenges Jesus's identity. If you are the son of God, then do this and prove that God delights in you in the way that you think he does. And again, Satan quotes scripture. But he does this to lure Jesus in. He he uses Psalm 91 that if Jesus were to fall, God would indeed spare him. And so here's the hook and here's the key, is that Jesus tells us in John that he only does what the Father does. I only do what I see my Father doing, he says. That his life was lived in obedience, that his life was this mirrored reflection to the Father's will. But him jumping off the temple would not be the Father's will. And so he was testing God by asking him to bless his disobedience. Like, is that applicable for you and I today? That, that testing God is when Jesus would jump off the temple, which God would not have him do, in order to prove that he is who he says he is, and to convince him that God would only be faithful by saving him. It's the same thing that Israel did. It's the same lie that they bought. Israel, when they're in the wilderness, and, and they're not only starving, but they're thirsty, And they complain about God, and they indicted God for not being good. In essence, they commanded him to give them water. And it went so far as Moses, if you guys remember, strikes this rock, and he's punished for striking this rock, and he was sort of the the personification of that kind of disobedience that did not trust God, and actually wanted to bless God in his disobedience. And so in his rebuttal by saying, do not put God to the test, what he's saying is, I will not do what God is not doing. And God has better plans for me. God has a better way for me. And this is so applicable for you and I. God's way was not for him to be like Superman off of the temple. God's plan was for him to actually go to a cross. That was how he would lose his life. He was submitted to God's plan. Not for his own self-promotion, that wasn't what Jesus was about, which is what Satan wanted. But it was actually for the Father's glory, putting his Father's plan ahead of his own plan. And so let me summarize this before I get into some application parts. Jesus himself was victorious over every single challenge that was put in his path. Hebrews tells us that he was made like us in every way, but that Jesus was actually without sin. That he became like us in every way, that he suffered in the wilderness like us. And he did not sin, that he was victorious over every challenge that was put his way. And the challenge to, to question whether or not God was going to provide him for him or whether or not God's plans for him were right, the temptation, the temptation to question the Father's delight in him, his own identity, the, this challenge to pursue the calling that God had for him, whether it was good for him or not, but for our blessing. To misuse power, to take control, to turn stones into bread. Jesus was tempted with all of these things. And so how does this apply to you and I? And this is where I think it gets kind of fun. We've already done some of the heavy lifting here, but I want to focus on a few things. The first thing is just about temptation. And so as we look at this next week, like each week in the next series of weeks, I want to have something that I leave you with that just is something that would prod your heart a little bit that would cause you to take some action. Because nothing that's formative in your life doesn't require action of you to some degree. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works. And so there's an amazing opportunity for us to look at this season and ask God, God, what is it that you want me to choose in this season? And as I choose these things, what is it that I want in return for that? What do I wanna fill myself with? And so this first thing is about temptation. Satan, the, tamter, the tempter, is creative, right? He's cunning. It said that Satan was the most cunning. That means crafty. That means smart. But he's also insidious. Like Satan sort of always crawls between the grass line of our lives. And it's only when he's exposed that Satan becomes sort of the least dangerous. It's when he's underneath and can't be seen that we think, oh, I actually don't believe that Satan even exists, is actually where Satan is the most alive and active. When we think, we disregard him and we think he's not even there because we become convinced that we can do whatever because there's zero consequences for our actions. But he's not creative in what what he attempts to accomplish and that is to put mistrust between us and God. That's his goal, is to break down trust, to cause a separation between us and God. God, you don't have my best at heart. God, you don't know like what you're doing. I mean, I know you created all the world and everything in it, but you really don't get me, God. You really don't understand what it is that I need. I mean, that is the perfect lie that he gets in with. And Satan causes us to question, especially when we're in these wilderness seasons, in these seasons of our life, when we are suffering, when we're grieving, in these seasons of our life, when you and I are all alone, I think a lot about aloneness, especially over the last three years, because we've been in a country that has probably seen uh, isolation stronger in the last three years than any time before in our country's history. And I'm confronted with a lot because I feel like I'm always stepping into conversations with people that are like, I feel alone. I feel like I have nobody, I feel isolated. And it becomes this, this corner that the enemy backs us in to convince us that you need to stay there. And what he does in doing that is he cuts the life out of you, as you begin to isolate like that. Satan wants you to be alone. Satan wants you to sort of die off. Um, as I think about, I don't know about you guys, but um, in the summertime when we build campfires, like I'll sit there and just stare at the fire. And, and I'm just like intrigued by like the, 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 the heat of, of the blaze and looking at the embers and you just, does anybody else do that or am I crazy? You just, you're like mesmerized. You're like, what in the world is going on in there? That thing is so, I just want to touch it, you know, like uh, it, it's just, it's so hot. And, and so like we sit and stare at it. And what's interesting is that you know that if you take things that aren't burning and you begin to put them straight in the middle of the ember, what happens? The thing catches fire, and you're like, oh man, this is rad, you know, like start heaping stuff on there and throwing some gas on it and just like having fun with the deal. But it gets hot. But I don't know if you've ever sat there and watched a fire, and and then you've watched as there's a portion of the log that begins to sort of burn through, and then you watch an ember, a piece from that log fall off on its own in the fire, and then soon enough, you just watch it as it fizzles out. Like, it has no more heat. It's not connected to the source anymore. And as I sit and watch that, sometimes I trip out because I'm like, that's the perfect way that the enemy wants to isolate us, drain the life out of us, pull us out of the source, and place us in a, in, in a spot where we're solely on our own and convinced that we can't work our way back. And then he begins that process of just consuming and decomposing our hearts. And he's done that well in the last few years in our country. But our temptation is also about false attractions. Like our temptation is also about things that Satan puts before us. Like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and you're just running after it and then you get there and it's like a pile of poop. you know, And you're like, what in the world? I thought this was just... Like, the best thing ever. And it's like, no, he deceives us. That is how Satan works. It's actually trash. This theologian, Richard Sibs says this. Satan gives Adam an apple and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, let us consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. Lent is the time to remember and confess that we're not to pursue what this world offers. Wealth. Power, authority, splendor, the way of the world, the, the way the world worships it, but we're to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Secondly, I want to affirm you all this morning that you're no longer an orphan, you're no longer alone. Now, you may be living alone. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you are actually no longer alone. You're not forgotten. Even if you're in the wilderness, even if you feel as though you're starving and you're isolated and you're suffering. Because if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. What does Hebrews say? It says Jesus learned obedience in that wilderness. And if we abide in him, we too will learn. And this is what what Joseph said, looking back at the whole of his life. Yeah, my brothers threw me in a pit, they left me for dead, I was put in a prison a couple of times. But if you remember what he said, he says this, what you meant for evil, God used for good. What Satan means for evil, God will use for good. God does not waste a thing. And so we're to confess the ways that we are like Israel that we are not like Jesus, we're to confess those things. The times that we ask God to bless us in our disobedience, we should confess those things. God, I know that I'm not doing what I should be doing, but please bless me anyway, like we often say that. That's how we test God. But church, I want you to know this morning that you're actually delighted over by God. I mean, me telling you do more do more go do this thing will never lead you closer to god but me telling you this morning reminding you this morning how much god loves you how prized you are in god's eyes this morning how cherished you are i hope that just like pushes you back into the ember right in the core of it right where the fire is that he loves you that is the fuel that pushes us towards him i did this amazing moment with my son two weeks ago and I'm gonna try not to cry. But we were at a youth retreat and um, it's at the end of the service that I was speaking at and I see my son standing over there and he doesn't know any of this happened. And and I walk over to him and I lay my hand on him and I start praying for my son. And in this moment, like I'm praying for him and I feel like God's given me like these words for my son and I'm I'm praying for him and um, In a moment, like, I'm just completely overwhelmed with how much I love and cherish my son. Like, I'm praying for him, I'm just like, he's the bomb. Not a kid, he's 18 next month. He's a man. And I'm literally praying and realizing, like, how how much he means to me. And in an instant, while I'm praying for him, it was like, God, show me his hand on me, and he's like, Now you understand how I feel. Son, you are cherished. I'm overwhelmed with love for you. And that moment for me was this moment of realizing like, yeah, I want my life to produce fruit. I want to take the ember that Jesus has been burning in my heart and use it for good to draw people to him but nothing that I do gives me that place in Jesus' heart. He thinks that anyway. And you're here this morning and some of you just need to be reminded that you're stinking cherished. (laughs) Like above all, there's this God that loves you so deeply, so much that nothing you can do or say would cause him to think any differently of you. And I'll close with this final application. And that's just about Jesus. Hebrews five says this about Jesus. It says, during his life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Think about him doing that in the wilderness as well, not just in Gethsemane, not just on the cross. It says, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. He left the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, you guys. This time that, that he spends this 40 days, he leaves there in the power of the Spirit. And this passage in Hebrews 5 goes on to say, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He became it. Like, he literally won the garden. Jesus literally won the cross. He won the resurrection of the dead. Like, he's the fulfillment of all of Israel. Jesus is the second Adam, right? He succeeded where Adam had failed. He's our source of, of holistic salvation for us mentally, for us emotionally, sexually, relationally, socially, vocationally he is your source of salvation for everything and that doesn't mean that his goal for you is to be healthy wealthy and wise that's not his plan it means that his goal for you is actually to give him glory that the ember would burn and all who see that thing flaming would know that it's Jesus who ignited that thing within you that they'll see him and I want you to tell you guys this morning that you have a power in you that can resist temptation like none other. Who was it that was with Jesus in the, in the wilderness? Not a rhetorical question. Who was it? The Spirit. Who was it that Jesus received as he leaves the wilderness experience? The Spirit goes with him. What's it say later on? That the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you and I. Those who would call upon the name of Jesus would receive the same spirit. So you reach a season of your life where you're like, temptation is it's overbearing. It's just too much. I can't deal with it. There's no way for me to stand on the weight of it. And Jesus goes, my spirit is with you. And not just that, but I love you like crazy. You got this. I am with you in the midst of it all. You have a power in you that can resist any temptation. And maybe this morning, probably all of us actually, have something in our life that we think is sort of the go-to temptation. It's the thing that the enemy always uses. It's sort of the, like my path that's well-trodden. Like I continue to go down this path. It's what I go to. It's my temptation. It's my thing. And I wanna tell you that one of my favorite passages is 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, which says, no temptation is overtaking you, that is not common to man, right? Means everybody's probably struggling with it. But we're convinced sometimes that we're the only ones that are dealing with it. And we isolate. We don't talk about it. We don't confess it. We don't deal with it because we're the only ones. And he says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. And then he goes on to say, But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Does it say remove you from it? No. It says that you may be able to endure it. That means that if you're an escape artist and that's sort of what you do, that's how you deal with temptation, you're a person that just sort of runs and hides, or, or you're a person that attacks others, or you're a person that sort of indicts God, you remove yourself from others, like, if that's you, like, you need to know this morning that you actually can stand up to it, that you can actually deal with it, that you don't have to run anymore. And the point is, however it is that you give in to temptation, you don't have to do it anymore. Jesus has bought it all paid the price, and he's given you a spirit to walk through it. And I'll close with this. I'll ask the worship team to come up. Will you today allow temptation to strengthen you, or will you allow it to ruin you? Because it will do one of those two things. It'll be that which God uses to strengthen you, or it'll be that which ruins you. This morning, will you come with me to Jesus and confession and humility and saying, God, like I'm a mess because the reality is all of us in here are jacked up. We all are a mess to some sort. The joy is that we get to be a mess together, right? <laughs> For Jesus. But will you this morning come to conf- in confession to God? Or will you run like Adam? What will you do? John Owen said this, Temptation is like a knife that may either cut the meat or the throat of a man. It may be his food or his poison, his exercise or his destruction. So how will you leverage that temptation in your life? How is it that Jesus is with you right now? What power do you have to stand in the midst of it? First John 1.9, close with this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just will forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a cool morning to take communion. As we close out this morning, we're gonna sing a song. I'm gonna ask the prayer team to come up here and maybe a couple of you on each side of the stage. And what I'm gonna ask you is this, are there things this morning that you're standing under the weight of that feel unbearable? Are there things this morning that the Lord is prompting in your heart to confess? And the reality is like, we'll have prayer people up here. I'd love for you guys to come forward, receive prayer, have somebody anoint you with oil, like pray for you this morning. Ask for Jesus to strengthen you. And some of you will think to yourself, I will not get up and do that because people will know that I have a problem. And the reality is they all have problems. Some will choose to do something about it and some will continue to be ruined by it. This morning, Jesus is welcoming you with open arms. He's receiving you. I'll repeat it again. He's overwhelmed and loved by you. You are cherished in his eyes. Like me with my son, Jesus looks at you this morning and he thinks like, there's nothing I love more than you. And so as we open up this time and we sing and worship, I'm gonna invite you to come forward, those of you who need prayer. May this be a sweet time where we can confess, where we can receive prayer, ask for strengthening, actually be the body of Christ. Not a people that just attend a church service together and go home, but a people who actually feel like we're in this together, we're in the fire with one another. And Jesus is here with us by his spirit. And so as we close in this worship song, I'll have you guys, if you wanna come forward and get prayer, come forward and get prayer. We're gonna sing a song. As soon as we sing this first song, One of our elders, Neil, is going to come up and he's going to lead us in communion and we'll partake in communion together and then we'll close out in a song. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for the strength that only you give us. Thank you for your example, Jesus. Your example that showed us your great love for us, but also showed us, Jesus, strength that we can find in you. And so I pray this morning for your church that they would find that strength. I pray this morning for humility to be present in us, that as we think about the things that are overwhelming us, the temptations and the things that keep us from you, as we enter into the season in Lent, I pray that it'd be a season where we would say, confession is this opportunity to actually make a choice to give something up to receive something greater in you turn. And as we confess, we're giving up our junk. We're literally pinning it to that cross and we're asking Jesus, give us more of you. Fill us with your love and your compassion and your grace and your forgiveness. Overwhelm us with your love this morning, Jesus. Reveal yourself to us. Make yourself known. And in Jesus' name, would you have a work in this place, in the hearts of your people, like no man, no person, no small g God could ever accomplish, only you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we sing, if you wanna come forward and receive prayer, our prayer team's up here. we love the opportunity to pray with you. And then after we sing, we'll come up and do communion.